Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Saqqara life. to have Melissa Phoebos on the podcast today. I just got done reading her latest book, Girlhood. She also is the author of Whip Smart and Abandon Me and is an associate professor at the University of Iowa, where she teaches in the nonfiction writing program. Truly, Melissa is an incredible writer. She's won several awards. Her book reads like butter. It's just like she just takes you on this journey of what it's like to be a woman in society today and the power dynamics at play on what it means to go from a very young girl and then through puberty and go from being compared to boys as equal and strong and athletic. And then all of a sudden you become this sexualized being and you have to contend with what that means in society, whether you like it or not, and how those themes tease out into the rest of adulthood and inform so many of our decisions, our inner dialogue, our power dynamics, our relationships, etc. And she walks us through her personal experiences as a child, also as an adult and a dominatrix and those power dynamics. So it's a fascinating conversation and we hope you enjoy. Well, Melissa, we're so excited to have you on the Sakara Life podcast today. Danielle has been reading your book, Girlhood. I have to be honest, I haven't read it yet, but she has had so many great things to say about it. It's definitely had an impact on her. So I'm excited to talk to you today and learn more about it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. And thanks for reading my book, Danielle. (laughs) (laughs) And no pressure, Whitney, no pressure. (laughs) No, I want to read it. A large percentage of my friends are writers and we basically have a deal where it's like, there's never any pressure because we all are trying to put our own work first. So whenever you get to it, you get to it is is the rule. And you're you're under the umbrella of that too. (laughs) Well, you were just saying that you recorded your audio book, which is why you have that fancy mic. So for anyone Mm -hmm. that you know, doesn't have the time to, to pick up a book and audio book is mm-hmm. next best thing. Mm-hmm. Such a good suggestion. And from what I've heard from Danielle and other team members who have read your book, they all say it's like reading a memoir. So we'll have to get into that. Mm-hmm. But we like to start out every episode of the Sakara Life podcast by asking our guest about their mission. So Melissa, what do you feel like is your personal mission here on earth? Wow. (laughs) So this is not something that I have articulated specifically, but I definitely have an answer because I've, you know, been living inside my life for 40 years and, and some things have become really clear along that time. And so I would say that my, my personal mission, as I have observed from basically the way I spend my time and where I put my energy and what feels important to me, probably orbits all around the idea of integration. And by that, I mean, I have worked really hard and really consistently to build a life where my creative practice, my art is at the center of it, my art and my relationships with other people, you know? So I would say art and intimacy and all of its various forms are sort of at the center of my life and everything else kind of radiates out of that, right? Like, Something that I, you know, find challenging that most of the people I know find challenging is trying to fit everything I want in my life, in my life. And so the, the sort of strategy that I've developed is that everything sort of feeds into other things, right? Like I have the time I spend with my friends is the time that I spend also like 
having a spiritual practice or my recovery or my creative practice, or it's all intertwined, right? Like there are no sort of discrete categories of priorities or activities in my life. It's all kind of bound up together. I love the intersection of art and intimacy because it resonates with how I experienced your book. I haven't actually read your others, but I know that they're memoirs, Mm -hmm. um, which is just so interesting that then this one ended up feeling like not just your memoir, but our memoir. Mm -hmm. And so I'd love to just start there. Like, how is it? One of my biggest takeaways from reading the book was how you articulated an experience that I've had. I know Whitney has had we've known each other since we were kids, you know, the, the people that I gave the book to said the women, they said they had had that experience. And yet how, and why do I feel so isolated in that experience when it's a, a community experience amongst women and some mm-hmm. men? I'm sure. Can we back up a second? And, you know, for those who haven't read the book or don't know what this is about, can we give a little overview and, and that way people can understand what experience you're speaking to as well, Danielle? So Melissa, can you tell us a little bit about your book and yeah, your message? Sure. Happy to. So this is my third book and it's called Girlhood. It came out this past March and it's a collection of essays that really sort of use my adolescence, my particular experience of embodied female adolescence and looks at the ways that the experiences I had during that time have reverberated through the rest of my life and the work that I have found it takes to repair or undo or unlearn or restore the effects of those experiences, which all sounds pretty abstract. So maybe Danielle can speak more particularly to what part of it she related to. Yeah, I think it was the um, one, it was realizing that aha moment of, wow, I have my own version of everything Neve went through. And Mm -hmm. then how you extrapolate that out into broader themes in my adult life. That Mm -hmm. I guess I'm just surprised that one, I feel so, I I never thought about how alone I felt in in those experiences. But in retrospect, I I have felt alone in those experiences, even Mm -hmm. though I'm pretty certain they're a very common experience for young women. Mm -hmm. And then also you know, there are lots of ways that I connect the dots of how some of those, you know, adolescent girlhood experiences, what they mean for my adult life, but not to nearly to the degree that you walk us through Mm -hmm. in the book. So I'm also surprised by how much my current life is impacted by those experiences that I didn't even realize. Mm -hmm. Well, what you just described could also be a description of my experience of writing the book. <laughs> you know, I sort of am the test subject. You know, I walked myself through the experience of writing these essays, which made me want to share it with other people because I had a, an experience that was very similar to what you're saying. And I'll get more specific. And so I would say that sort of the top notes of, of the experiences that I write about in this book have to do with body image, body shame, sexuality, relationship, both sort of to boys and men and to other girls and women, and the ways that sort of my relationship to my own body, to my sexuality, to other people and their desires, the ways that those initial experiences sort of laid a path that I walked down into adulthood and that I realized you know, sometimes before I started writing the book, sometimes while I was writing the book, that they would never change unless I did a really deep dive into sort of where they came from and how they manifested in a really granular way in my own behavior. And so I'll start with body image because that feels like sort of the closest within reach and maybe the most universal. Um, And I think, you know, it's funny when I sat down and started writing this book, I didn't know I was writing this book. I was just writing about my experiences as an adolescent, sort of this shift that happened for me when I was about 11 and 12 years old, where I went from being really athletic and healthy and strong and being a good student and feeling like being strong and powerful and sort of achieving in certain ways that were totally comparable to the ways that boys were recognized as achieving and getting a lot of self-esteem out of that. And then 
all of a sudden that really making kind of a 180 turn and it manifesting most recognizably first through my relationship to food in my body. And this is something, right. I have identified as a feminist, as someone who is interested in sort of thwarting or rejecting like beauty industry standards and patriarchal ideas of um, how we should relate to food or how we should relate to desire, like all of the sort of one-on-one level of that stuff, I've been aware of my whole life. My mom is like a super second wave feminist and I grew up with all the information, right? But I still live here (laughs) and in this body. And so I can remember being 11, 12, 13, all the way through my life and thinking, how is it that I can know that it's all nonsense, that it's harmful to me, that it isn't my own ideas and still be obsessing about what I'm eating, about how many calories are in it, about how I appear to other people. And that sort of cognitive dissonance, that like split consciousness is so deeply uncomfortable and I've had it my whole life. Right. And so right about that point is like the extent to which I talked about it before I wrote this book where it was, we sort of, you know, I would talk to my friends and we acknowledged it and made jokes about it. And we're generally thought of ourselves as being really aware, but I don't think I ever really stopped and thought, okay, what are the parts of this that I haven't talked about? What are the parts of this that still carry really thick layers of shame and how might I need to make those parts speakable in order to actually undo this? Like, how do I actually change it? Because I think I was sort of in a de facto place of acceptance really, right? Where it's like, okay, I'm sort of like doing all of this over here, like reading these books and having these conversations and um, giving this advice to younger women and my students. And then on the other hand, I'm like, compulsively exercising and restricting my food and feeling a lot of body shame and scrutinizing myself in the mirror with this script that's like really brutal. And that's just how I live. And and so I think that the surprise of everyone relating in a way that feels more intimate is that I think that level of shame and the personal sort of hurt and trap of it, we don't quite get into that. We still or I didn't talk about it with my friends. There was, I don't know, even talking about disordered eating, it's not the same as talking about other kinds of vulnerability. Like there's so much shame around it. Yeah. It's also not the same as talking about yours. So what I mean by that is we can all recognize that there are these themes that inform some of our core beliefs Mm -hmm. and why we make certain harmful decisions. but to do the exercise, like what your book did for me, was it in you going through your kind of deepest, darkest kind of experiences in your life that informed some of then your behavior, it forced me, like none of the, none of the realizations were like, oh yeah, I didn't know that, you know, I need to make myself smaller. You know, there's a lot of things that we know, but what you did is you talked about your personal experience as to why that happened. So you brought to life the themes that we all know are true. Mm -hmm. And in doing that forced me, and I'd actually like to do it much further, but forced me to ask myself, like, what did I experience at 11? And that point that you made about, you know, when you were 11 and going from this equal person in the world who isn't seen as a sexual being yet is seen Mm -hmm. just exactly for how she's showing up. And then the minute you have boobs or the minute you're seen as sexy Mm -hmm. and beautiful, you no longer have a choice on how you interact with the world. The world chooses for you. And so Mm -hmm. I think one of the powerful things about your book is that it, it forces the reader to say, well, what, when did that happen to me? Cause all Mm -hmm. these things happened to us. Yeah, But I think there's power in knowing exactly what my version is that then is informing some of my core beliefs and behavior. Right. Because there's this confusion. It's counterintuitive in a way. Like when I have a thought, I shouldn't eat that. I look fat, whatever it is, you know, that's not beautiful. It feels like it's coming from inside my own head, right? Like it's a thought I'm having. So it's easy to sort of assume without even consciously thinking it, that it's like a fundamental belief or that it's just true or that it's my opinion when actually those are ideas that were very 
sort of insistently and consciously sort of input from outside of me. And I don't think I can really sort of cognitively understand that until I trace it back to being like, oh, that girl in third grade just like pointed at my leg and was like, that's fat. And it just stuck in there because I was in a formative moment where I was assembling my own self-image, right? And the stuff that was getting in, I absolutely don't believe now. And if someone said it to me for the first time now, I would never speak to them again. But because it got in there when I was like a little sponge, when I was so innocent, it's been lurking around masquerading as my own thought for like 30 years, you know? And so a big part of what I wanted to do with this book for myself was to find a way to create a little bit of space when I have a thought or a belief that comes up where instead of just taking it for granted, thinking like, where did that come from? Do I actually believe that? Like who suggested that to me? And is it a trustworthy source? It's so valuable because part of my work in creating Sakara was really getting to the root of when did I first allow the notion that I needed to be thinner, to be beautiful? When did I first Mm -hmm. allow that to enter my brain? And Mm -hmm. I had to excavate so much and it was a process. And, you know, as these things are, and for anyone listening, it's like the, the process of excavating is important, whether you're building a business around it or not. But Mm -hmm. it's important because otherwise it shows up in places where you're like, oh, I didn't want to excavate in that moment. And I can tell you, I excavated in a moment that I wish I hadn't. And Whitney's smirking right now because she knows exactly what I was going to say. But we talk about how we have PTSD about this experience, but we created this video and I won't name for who. And it was very early on in our career. It must have been like a year or two after starting Sakara. And even though I experienced a, a complete transformation in my relationship to myself and my food and my plate, there's still, you know, so much to work through to really understand the core of what a lot of your, your stories get into. And so on this video, somebody asked a question or something about like where well, it was our, we worked with a media coach who's a good friend of ours for this video. And we were supposed to tell the story of why we created Sakara. And she pushed Danielle to go all the way back. And I remember she was asking Danielle, like, no, but why did you start this? And she was like, oh, because eating this way transformed my life. No, no, no. But really dig deeper. Like, why did you need this transformation? Why were you you know, feeling this way in your body and kept pushing deeper and deeper. And Danielle was like, no, 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 no. Until. Until. And she wasn't with us on this video set. I was like, oh, wow, this is where I'm going. I'm finding like the root, you know, the root nerve of some what has informed so much of my life. And it was like, I started crying on the video and it was all about how this boy in third grade started making fun of me because of the size of my lunches. Cause my mom would put like a sandwich and a whole banana and an apple. And so my lunchbox is like humongous. And he started making fun of me on the size of my lunchbox and that it informed like, Oh, I shouldn't eat. He probably thinks I'm fat. And it's mm-hmm. just, it was such an aha moment for me that, you know, I guess I hope, you know, that video has been viewed many times. <laughs> I hope it's helped somebody else. I trust mm-hmm. there's a reason those things happen, but it was painful. And so like excavating, you know, maybe when you're off camera, but the, mm. the importance of ex- excavating, it was like what your book reminded me of. Like finding yeah, those nerves. Uncovering what are some of those fundamental, just like moments, those pivotal moments that we don't even realize get planted inside mm-hmm. of us along the way, but mm-hmm. taking that time to go back and uncover, unplant certain seeds or, you know, pull out the weeds and Mm -hmm. only allow to have those thoughts that we want to be having planted inside of us that Mm -hmm. we have the option to choose now. And I think that that's something that a meditation practice can help with Mm -hmm. around selecting which thoughts you're thinking. But I like this idea of going in and just taking the time to think about What were those moments, like that moment in third grade Mm -hmm. that make you think about? Yeah, were you a mess when you wrote this book? (laughs) You know, intermittently a mess, Not, not the whole way through. And I think, you know, I have this sort of 
uh, I don't know my personality, I guess, <laughs> I guess I bet you relate to it where I am like extremely functional, very punctual. I meet all my deadlines. Like I'm very like keeping it together in the function of my life. And part of the way I can do that is because my work, my, my art, my writing is a space where I get to get really messy. And I do so completely alone. Like the absolute privacy of my creative practice is so integral to its possibility. Like I definitely could not have written this book if I was sort of showing it to people the whole way, or if anyone was watching me, like I can only sort of say these kinds of things for the first time by promising myself that I never have to say it to another person if I don't want to. I usually end up wanting to because it's so transformative, right? But there are all of these voices that are telling me I shouldn't do it, right? And sometimes they're the same voices that are telling me I can't wear those pants or I shouldn't eat that or whatever. And, you know, one of them, and I thought of this while you were telling your lunchbox story, is that I, it felt to me like those root experiences or moments, like they weren't bad enough or something, right? Like it, like, you know, similarly for me, like being teased as a kid or like reading teen girl magazines or like there wasn't a one thing that seemed like traumatic enough that I could say this has catastrophically affected my entire life, but it had, right? So I was in this like weird space where I was like, wouldn't allow myself to acknowledge how deeply I'd been affected by like seemingly pretty subtle, like I thought I should be able to dismiss it kind of experiences, but by not acknowledging it, I was continuing to be affected by it and sort of living trapped inside of it, right? And so I think you know, at the real core for me of almost every kind of personal transformation or change in my like really core behavior is the really vulnerable experience of admitting that I was hurt, right? Of admitting that I'm affected by things, that I'm super sensitive and I always have been. And most of us are, you know, it doesn't take much, especially when we're in really absorbent sort of vulnerable moments where we're just figuring out what things are and who we are. I'd love to talk about whether you think any of this is changing. So Whitney and I, most of our lives, I'd say have been pretty blessed to be around a lot of empowering women. I mean, in high school, there was definitely some less, some disempowering experiences, but in our adult lives, and I'd also say because together, I think we have such a supportive, empowering, like I just want her to shine and vice versa, that it attracted others that wanted the same. Do you think that there's a quote in your book when you're talking about when you were in the pool and what it felt mm -hmm. like? I just wanted to read it real quick. They stared at my zippered swimsuit. No, they stared at my body. And in those scorching moments, the blue water turned flame. I knew that there are some people we love for having the things we don't and some people we hate for the same reason. And so this idea of competition versus celebrating one another, do you think that things are changing for the better or do you think these are like inherent kind of core themes that live throughout generations? Because mm. I'd say there is the shift to the feminine in yeah. the culture. Yeah, yeah. I definitely think that there is it's not fixed. It definitely, I mean, all I have to do is talk to my friends with, with daughters, I but I do think sort of the adult experience and the like general mainstream cultural discourse around sort of female friendship and female achievement is so different. And I think we have the internet, like there was no internet when I was a kid and there we have access to so many other kinds of models where for me, it was like, just the people I actually knew in my town. Right. You know what I mean? So I was like, okay, I'm the only like bisexual teenager I know. And of course that wasn't true, but I didn't have access to different information. I only had access to what the people around me were saying and they were saying, you're the only one. <laughs> and so I do think it's changed. And, and I, I similarly have had the experience of having that dynamic of competition and sort of policing other girls, having that instilled in me really young. And I think as an 
an adult really starting like in my late teens, that wasn't the experience that I had in my relationships. It wasn't the experience I had in any kind of female community, but because it got in there so young, it was just a script running in my mind, right. Where I was comparing myself to other women. And I definitely see, like, I have done some thinking about my relationships with other women. And I know the ways that when I spend time with a friend who is comparing her body unfavorably to other people or like verbally sort of placing her food in a certain way, how, when I leave that lunch, those voices are stronger in my own mind. Right. And so a huge part of it for me is recognizing how important it is to have collaborators in my friendships, to have people who are helping me to counter those voices that are coming from like the ads on Instagram or whatever it is, you know, it's still, there's a lot of input, but I do think that there's, there's so many more potential models now for relationships. It's not just like a mean girl's script. Thank God, you know? Yeah. It's almost could be this double-edged sword too. It's like you're informed. You have, I like what you were saying. Cause it was the same for me as a kid. It was like, I was just informed by my surroundings and I think there are different models. And then on the flip side, there's also so many more people to compare yourself to and they're filtered and they're <laughs> yeah. pinched and they're, yeah. Yeah. It's a wild yeah. world. I have a three-year-old and I, I really, I don't know. I don't know what to do. All I, all I know to do is like fill her with as much love as I possibly mm-hmm. can, because once mm-hmm. she goes out really into the world, it's like, she's going to have to face all the things that I did. And you yeah. know, what, what yeah. can you do other than just equip them with as much love and strength and power? I think that's it. Right. Cause you can't, you can't control all that other stuff, but you know, my own experience, I had had a really hard time as an adolescent and it's been a long road, but I definitely now can see so clearly the ways that the alternative messaging and sort of building up and the kind of like unconditional love and admiration that I got in my family and particularly from my mom, how that really did sort of, you know, as I was absorbing all of these like negative harmful messages, I was also absorbing that. And it created this kind of foundation that has been so important for me as I've been become ready to sort of take on that challenge and really sort of change things and, and change, you know, how I'm modeling that for my friends, for my students, you know, like it really gave me that, that base. Yeah. So it takes a while to see, you know, like I imagine as a parent, it's so painful to watch for a long time, but, but it's in there. Yeah. And maybe we can touch on, you touch on in your book, the, the idea of power dynamics and the need for them in the kind of woman to man or feminine to masculine relationship and how it's, it's not just happenstance that we need to make ourselves small, that that is inherently part of the, the power dynamic of what it is to be a beautiful woman is to continue to make yourself smaller and smaller and smaller. So can you, you touch on that and, and maybe share one of the stories from your book on how that was, how that manifested or exemplified? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I would go all the way back to sort of that, that shift when I was 11 or 12, like I was super athletic. I was really confident. I was, I was a very strong kid, like just like vigorous. And I remember it was like fifth grade, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, when that completely started to shift. And suddenly in the book, I, I, um, I use sort of my hands as a touchstone for that experience because I have really big hands. Like I'm pretty petite and like a pretty small person in general, though I didn't feel that way, but I have really big hands. And they did when I was a kid. And I remember it was, I think it was like fourth or fifth grade when people started pointing it out in this, like, ew, you have like manly hands or you have big hands. And I don't even know if I had this thought, but I do remember the confusion of being like, wait, that was good. Like it was good to be big. Like when you're a little kid, everyone wants to be big. Mm -hmm. And I was an early bloomer. So I was like, actually I'm only five, two, but I was like the tallest kid in my class in like third and fourth grade. And, and I was like, wait, how is it that suddenly that's not good, but it's still good for them, for boys. Right. 
And I remember being teased by boys for being strong, right? Because I could like do more pushups than them. And I was like showing off, but then suddenly it was something to be ashamed of. And just having to sort of bend my mind around that changed meaning. And, you know, this again is like one of those things where it's so obvious, but I really had to come to it through my childhood experience and in writing about the, my relationship to my hands, my relationship to my body, my relationship to sort of restrictive eating, which had been for, you know, since I was 11 until I was in my late thirties and being like, Oh, right. Like I live in a society where men still vastly run our government. They earn more money on the dollar than I do. Like we live in a very successful patriarchal society and it behooves the people in power for me to make myself small and to be counting my calories instead of running for office. Like it's really, it can be described in really crude terms, you know? And I don't think it's like every boy I encountered or every man I encounter is like, oh, she should be obsessed with her food and making herself small so that she doesn't become president. (laughs) Like, I don't think they're thinking that, but you know, it's like you said, I don't think it's, it's inherent in us, but it is a centuries long system of power that is run itself functioning, right. It's self-perpetuating. It just goes and goes and goes. And there's also an enormous industry making so much money on us trying to make ourselves smaller. And so we don't have to consciously think it in order to be complicit, in order to enforce it, in order to perpetuate it. And in order to sort of encourage other people to be doing so too. What did you feel like you would get out of calorie restricting and these Mm. types of things because I feel like all that information coming in at us makes us feel like we need to do all of that Mm -hmm. for you what did you feel like would be different in your life if you changed your body or whatever it was that's the thing right is that I mean I think it starts with male attention right? That we're sort of indoctrinated in this system of values where being attractive for girls starting at age 11 or 12 suddenly pops to the hierarchy. And like, that's what was going on when I was like, why is it not cool that I can do pushups anymore? Because nobody cares about that. Suddenly it's like being pretty and being desired and attention for men is just at the top of that hierarchy. And so I think that was the fantasy, right? Is that everyone's going to think I'm pretty. Everybody's going to want to date me. Everyone's going to want to have sex with me. Never mind that at the same time as someone who developed early, I was already getting a lot of sexual attention that was really unpleasant. And so again, there's like this cognitive dissonance, like this is what I want, but also I'm already getting it and I'm also getting punished and sort of ostracized for it. But as I got older, I really think that beauty becomes this like key to everything else, right? Like we're constantly bombarded with images of like skinny women succeeding, having money, getting attention, getting promotions, right? It feels like, and I remember having conversations and and I remember my own thinking like in my teens and, and my twenties to some extent of just believing that it was like this Midas touch or something. Like if I could just get small enough, everything else would be fine, which is I mean, imagine, yeah, it makes no sense, <laughs> you no, know, like I mean, what we talk a about this of sort of brainwashing. I'm like, yep. and the truth is that over the years, like in my 40 years of life, I have been very skinny many times and it did not make everything else great. Yeah, it really didn't. It's kind of the, the big sword I'm looking for. Like we're all being duped to think that. Mm-hmm. Thinking, Mm -hmm. oh, if only, if only Mm -hmm. I were five pounds, 10 pounds, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. thinner, if only, you know, my skin were clear, if Mm -hmm. only X, Y, Z, my life would be perfect. And Mm -hmm. it's, you know, and it's never enough. Just like you said, Mm -hmm. when you Mm -hmm. hit that new goal weight or whatever, and your life isn't changed, you didn't meet the person you were expecting to meet or get the promotion or whatever it was, then you feel like you have to go further. Right. It must be the next five pounds. Right. Right. I think we do this in, I mean, it's capitalism too, right. 
And where it's like, because I also know tons of writers who are like, if I just publish my first book, if I just get an agent, if I just, if I just, if I just, and then you get the thing and it doesn't do anything except like what that thing actually does, which is like, maybe get you a little bit of money and some congratulations. And then you wake up the next day and you're still you. It's like, oh, well, it must be like the second book, or I must have to win an award, or I must have to like smite my secret nemesis or whatever it is, you know, it just, it never ends. And this is something I end up talking about with my students all the time, actually, because they get so focused on the external stuff because our culture is so focused on the external stuff. Like I just have to get, there is no line. It goes forever. Like the only real finish line is death. (laughs) And so like, what are you actually going to do today? And again, like some of the other things we've talked about, this is something that I think intellectually I knew I'd read it. I'd heard it. My mom's a Buddhist. Like I know that you need to like that health matters and being present and connection with other people, but there's still that like rabid little voice. That's like, no, it's about being skinny. No, it's about money. You know? Yeah. Cause we're taught that in that power conversation, that our power is in mm-hmm. our beauty and mm-hmm. how we show up, not just as beautiful, but as you know, desirable. If, you know, our level of being desired in the world is what we have to offer the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I want to ask you about your experience being a dominatrix, because talking mm-hmm. about using sexuality combined with power, that is, mm-hmm. you know, you're playing that role. Mm-hmm. What was that like for you? And how, how do you feel like it was part of your of process to getting to where you are. Is it something we should all do? All women should just try it. (laughs) No, (laughs) definitely not. Um, I think it is only for the people who can't not do it. And I happen to be one of those people. I was just a very, a very boundary pushing, very infatuated with the exotic and the sort of hidden and unspoken about. And I think that's one part of it. And the other part of it is everything we've been talking about, right? Where, so I had this whole sort of experience from adolescence through my teenage years into my early twenties, where I was sort of striving to be desirable and also grappling with what that meant with my identity as a feminist and feeling like there was a really sort of fundamental conflict there. And being a dominatrix which I don't know what if you're, what your listeners know about that, but being a dominatrix is a, a job that's you know classified as part of sex work. It for me and for a lot of doms, it doesn't include sex insofar as we define it heterosexually. Usually, doesn't include intercourse, but mostly I would dress up in like really sexy outfits and act out scenes with my clients. In in most of which I played a powerful role where I was like humiliating them or bossing them around and telling them what to do or withholding from them. And so it was this setup where I was playing this powerful role, but I was also like to a T offering this image of the like sexy female icon, right? Like I was wearing stilettos and stockings and corsets and tons of makeup and no body hair except on my head and my eyebrows a little bit, Um, (laughs) you know, and, and I was like, this is a feminist job, right? You know, and I want to, I have to add the caveat that for some people, this is just my experience. There are many different kinds of experiences in this job, but for me, it felt like a place where I had permission to indulge the behavior that I was being prescribed so intensely and that I felt guilty about like wanting to sort of dress up sexy and be desired. But because I was like punishing men, it didn't conflict with my beliefs. And what I very quickly discovered is that even if you're playing a powerful role, if it's based off of like an actual script that a man brought in and is paying you to perform, it's not exactly the same thing as like having power in society, right? Um, and so, so it was really fun and exhilarating and it did feel empowering sometimes. And over the three and a half years that I did it, it felt less and less empowering and more and more humiliating and boring, honestly. And by the end of it, I thought, okay, 
I now know what it feels like to actually be desired to dress up and look beautiful every day and get desired. And that was literally my job. And I have scraped the bottom of the satisfactions in that, (laughs) you know, like it just, there was no way I could make an argument that it felt empowering or that it was liberating me. Did it feel satisfying that you like went there and you needed that to discover that for yourself? And then you were like, okay, that's, yeah, it did. And it, and it was, it was a complex experience, right? Like I met some incredible women, many of whom I'm still friends with. I learned how to be comfortable naked around other people for really the first time in my life because we were all just in the dressing room together and to speak frankly about sex and also to have, there were exchanges that I regularly had with my clients where before every session, we would have a little consultation and they would be like, here's what I want. And I would be like, well, I'm not going to do that, but I will do that. And here are my boundaries and here's my safe word, you know? And that kind of interaction, like that relationship to sort of talking about what our boundaries were and verbal consent was completely new to me at that point. Yeah, that's empowering. Um, so it was really, it it actually did have really empowering results in the rest of my life, but not at all in the ways that I expected. I don't want to leave men out of this conversation or like make men mm-hmm. the villain because they're playing into this narrative mm-hmm. as just as much as we are. And I think, you know, when I hear you talk about being a dom and I don't think that, I think the desire to be punished, it's like, you know, I'm not judging anyone's sexuality, but I'm talking about a broader theme of like, it can't feel good as a man to make a woman feel powerless. Like it just, there's no exchange in that that is actually fulfilling. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I don't know. That's not really a question, I guess, except how do we, you know, I actually have a daughter and a son. And so in a world where I'm bringing up both genders, it's like, how do you have the conversation that empowers her to be able to let things just kind of roll off of her and and not define her and become that inner voice? And then also empower him to not play into the need to to narrate Mm -hmm. that experience for women. It's something that I thought about a lot when I was in that job and that I've thought about a lot since, because all of these structures and dynamics that we're talking about, they hurt men too, right? And just think about also, if you had all these body issues, but also it was incredibly shameful to ever talk about them or admit them. And that's the experience that men with the body and the food shame stuff, there is not a long tradition of men bonding by talking about their body shame, the way that there is with women. And we don't think of that as a privilege, but it is something that we're allowed in which we do find companionship and relationship that men are completely isolated in and that it's seen as like super emasculating. And, you know, it's just a conversation that they have to have with themselves. And so, you know, when I was working as a dom, I thought a lot about how, how out of whack our society is in terms of how we think about power, right? And how a lot of the men who came in to see me were like, just tell me what to do, humiliate me. It felt like they were coming in in the secret way to pay me to sort of rebalance their experience of power because- they were expected in their lives that a lot of them were like stockbrokers, like big business, like men with a lot of money and a lot of power and a lot of responsibility who were very much playing a very traditional masculine role, which is a perversion of our nature, I think. And so they would come in and need to have that offset by being bossed around for a little while. And that if there was more room for them to be sensitive, to be passive, to be complacent in life, they wouldn't have needed to, you know, or if it felt safe to talk about it, they could have figured that out with their partners instead of coming to see me. Our society is not a safe place for men to express a desire for those things or so many kinds of vulnerability. I do start to see a change in that. I have Mm -hmm. a pretty good friend who's very successful Wall Street guy. Mm -hmm. He's no longer on Wall Street anymore. He had his success, but he now speaks openly about his anorexia and how it was part of this need for control over every aspect of his life and performance in every aspect of his life. And it's a lot of, a lot of pressure. He felt so much pressure 
that it translated into his own body image Mm. and that he couldn't talk about it as a man Mm. with anyone. That's amazing. I think it's more, more and more men need to be talking about it. Women have started talking about it. But when Danielle first started talking about her feelings around her body, Mm -hmm. I know it felt very scary. And so I think just more time and more openness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The conversations are starting. I think I'd love to end talking about desire because you touch on this theme in your book, but it sounds like men aren't necessarily talking about what they really want and women aren't talking about what they really want. I mean, this is, these are definitely like heteronormatives, but, and I think you say something like this, sorry, if I'm going to butcher it, feel free to correct me, but you talk about how women are often, their pleasure is defined by their partner's pleasure. Mm-hmm. In that world, you don't even think about your own desire because you're so caught up in the in the power dynamic and the the cultural narrative that my job is to actually please him. And so you mm-hmm. think that your desire is being fulfilled by pleasing him. Mm-hmm. I don't know. In writing this book, what have you learned about how to stand in your desire and own it? And do you have mm-hmm. tips for all the listeners? <laughs> Oh, here's what I will say. I, I spent most of my life focused on my partner's pleasure and thought of that as a successful sexual experience. And again, this is something that I wasn't saying to anyone or even quite thinking in words, but by going back and looking at how I behaved and the choices I made and the number of times I followed through with a sexual experience that I wasn't really that into it becomes really clear when I look at that sort of what was driving me and what my priorities were. And here's what I have learned. And a big part of this has come from being in a relationship where that is a really safe space for me to explore this stuff. And I'll just say it's, you know, these are sort of dynamics that come out of a long heterosexual tradition, but they certainly operate and interact and and exist within queer relationships. Like I'm married to a woman and both of us have had the experience of sort of being focused on the other person or like wanting to focus on the other person before we can really relax, you know? (laughs) And we basically have sort of an agreement and have like this ongoing conversation in our relationship where we understand that when we forget about the other person in a healthy way and really sort of sink into our own pleasure and think about what we want and stop when we don't want to be having sex anymore, that that creates a space in our relationship where so much more is possible. The idea of someone having sex with me because they think I want to when they're not really in the mood is horrifying to me. And I think it is to most people, right? And yet, you know, as a woman, I've been doing that for years with people. And so it really took for me to sort of switch that in my mind and think like, oh, if I don't want her to be doing anything physically with me that she's not super into, I really need to bring that practice into my own life. And what has resulted is a level of comfort and intimacy in sex that I've never experienced before, where I can really feel safe and take for granted that everybody is on board and everyone's having a good time. Because if we're not, we'll stop and it won't be personal because sometimes that's not, sometimes you're just thinking about something else or you want to be answering your email or whatever, yeah, you know, it's just life. <laughs> sometimes it's just like not sexy time. And that is so basic, but it has really transformed not only my, my sex life, but the rest of my life to all the other areas in which I say yes, when inside, I really feel like I'm a no. It's a beautiful practice and a beautiful lead in to light work um, without <laughs> leading the witness. Yeah. You know, we, we love to end on light work and, and what can each of us do to step into our power, step into our light a little bit, a lot bit more. Okay. Here's what I kind of, want to prescribe is a bolder option. I'm going to give two options, right? Because this is pretty advanced or it was for me. The goal for me, and this is like my life's work in many ways, is for me is enthusiastic consent in everything. Like you want to 
have lunch, I want to be able to say, yes, I want to have, you know, obviously there are parts of life where we can't always be giving enthusiastic consent. Like I have a job, but in the areas where it's really okay for me to say, no, I am trying to build a practice of pausing when someone asks something of me and really going inside and thinking like, do I really want to do that? Am I going to really want to do that? And only saying yes if I'm an enthusiastic yes. And so here's the sort of lower tier option because that's not always possible. Like I often cannot tolerate saying no to people. Like I just, it's just not always possible because I care too much about what they think and I don't want to disappoint people. And so a really instrumental practice for me is bringing, let me get back to you into my interactions. And this is like professional personal in my household when someone asks and I don't know, or I know that I don't want to, but I don't, it doesn't feel safe to say no. I say, can I get back to you? Sometimes it's easier to send a text message. No, rather than (laughs) come up with an excuse later rather Mm -hmm. than saying Mm -hmm. in the moment. Yeah. I I like that. that tip. Yeah. That's been a, that's been a big one for me is just like finding ways to make space for that pause to really listen to what I actually want and need. I love that. So good. Like the idea of learning how to not just communicate boundaries, but find them for yourself. Mm-hmm. I think in this world, like part of it, especially for the, uh, the, the female experience is like you're bound, you don't even know your boundaries. So it's less a question of keeping them. It's what are they? Yeah. I think that step gets left out of it sometimes. Um, especially when it's like a very well-worn pathway to yes, we don't even know. We just end up grumpy when we do the thing, (laughs) when we get asked, we just say yes, without even really sussing out how we feel about it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Melissa. We're so grateful for this conversation and, and the work that you're doing and putting out into the world. Thank you for that book. It was, it was beautiful. Oh, thank you. And likewise, thank you so much for the good work that you two are doing. Cheers. Beautiful. Thank you. That was amazing as I knew it would be. My pleasure. If you have a Sakara story that you would like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at sakarastories at sakaralife.com. That's S-A-K-A-R-A-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at sakaralife.com or send us a DM at Sakara Life. Don't forget to hit subscribe for the Sakara Life podcast and share this episode with anyone you think needs to hear what we talked about today. And don't forget about the light work. It might feel a little hard, a little uncomfortable, but it's supposed to. The whole idea is that we lean into what's uncomfortable so we all get to shine our lights a little brighter. And we'll see you on the other side, Sakara Lights. Lights.